I don't think that it's at all ambiguous where the violent tendencies that permeate evangelical thought come from. I can't even believe some of the things that I saw just watching these trailers for these movies. The stuff that's in them is, it's like, I look at this and I'm like, we would have gotten in trouble showing some of these movies at the student center. I wonder how many of the unwashed warriors who committed insurrection last week had visions of Beckman running through their heads. This is stuff that they can write off just so long as it has some kind of gospel-themed messaging in there somewhere. I saw enough shots of gun violence and victimization of women just in the trailers of some of these movies to figure out that the site description really is a crock of shit. Then you have Jesus talking about pitting children against parents, husbands against wives, brothers against brothers. You see him kill a tree for not bearing fruit. Well, fuck you, shoot it. You made it. Fix it. Don't kill it. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists, and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective. And a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And And it's it's time to get unbound. Well, it happened. They impeached him again. Second time's a charm. I sure do hope so. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And this week... We're going to continue the conversation. If you want to call what I did last week a conversation, <laughs> you know that's what this—that's what this show is supposed to be. It's supposed to be about a better conversation, not one of the hosts ranting for ten minutes. Mm-hmm. But I think that it was definitely appropriate. Yes, and I've gotten some very good feedback on what I had to say. So thanks to those of you who listened. Thanks to those of you who get it. And I have very high hopes for the outcome of this trial. One of the most important things that we have to remember about this is that one of the things that is going to be decided this time around is whether or not Donald Trump will ever be able to run for office again. And that, to me, is a lot more important than just shoving him out of office early. Right. I would much rather see a situation where he can't reel his ugly head again in 2024 as opposed to just removing him from office. But, of course, if they remove him from office before he has a chance to pardon himself then that's even better. Oh, yeah. But I'll take this. Yes. I'll take this. And so I think will a lot of other people. I also was very pleased to see how expeditious the powers that be have been bringing in the people who were responsible for the insurrection. Yes. There have been a lot of arrests. A lot of people are being held accountable for their actions. And there's going to be a lot more. A lot more. Yeah. I mean, these idiots walked into federal space where they were on camera pretty much the entire time they were in there. Right. And they've been pouring over videos and trying to figure out who these people are, and they are succeeding. Well, yes. I mean, big time succeeding. One guy was even ratted out by his ex-wife. Oh, I'm sure. Keep your marriages strong, people, because this is the type of thing that can happen. Well, actually, you know, some of his quote-unquote friends, people who knew him, Mm -hmm. also ratted him out. Right. So, yeah, there are some responsible citizens out there who are doing what they're supposed to do. This week, I thought, on the heels of all of this craziness, this is a topic that I've wanted to address for a while, but I always had it in my mind as being more in the line of Christian music and not this all-encompassing thing that it turned into. But I thought, why be biased here? Why just talk about Christian music? Let's include everything that's problematic with this particular subject. Let's include everything that's problematic with this particular subject. 
Tonight, we're going to be talking about violence and militaristic themes in Christian media. Mm. And we're going to start out with the biggest offender of all of them, the Bible, because the Bible is, in fact, print media. Yes. So I think that it's only appropriate to start at the source where a lot of this stinking thinking comes from. And there's a lot of extra biblical stuff that is thrown into the mix here, too. It doesn't all come from the Bible. It comes from a lot of crazy people's crazy minds, too. Mm -hmm. But where did they learn their crazy? This is kind of the foundation for yes. a lot of it. Oh, definitely. Now, I'm not going to read the entire passage here, but one of the key areas, at least in the New Testament, that fuels this kind of militaristic army marching forward kind of thing is in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, where Paul starts out talking about principalities and powers and then segues into his discourse on the full armor of God. Right. I don't know how many sermons I heard about this. And Sunday school lessons where the kids get to make the armor of God. Oh, yeah. I have to admit I'm guilty oh, yeah. of leading some of that because I did children's ministry at Faith Assembly for a while. Yeah. Even wrote some skits that were, oh, my God, so divisive and had the same kind of violent themes that we're going to be talking about here tonight. People going off to their deaths for petty crimes and that sort of thing, because, I mean, that's where we were. Yeah. And putting together puppet shows that were loosely based on certain Bible stories mm -hmm. and parables and all of that, that really took an ugly turn. Mm -hmm. And we're presenting this to like six, seven, and eight-year-olds. Yeah. It was just, it was so yeah, fucked up. Some of the up. materials for the children's church were pretty scary. Very scary. And I, I know you don't remember this, but I remember you having to deal with the adventures in Fruitville. It was something like that where instead of people, they used fruit. So it was okay to kill it. So Mr. Banana goes and he doesn't do what God says. So he turns rotten and dies. <sighs> now, you see, I remember so much that you don't. I have zero recollection of this. When and did this it, happen? It was just, it was some weird film strip. I mean, this is how long ago it was. Oh, it God, was a film, film strip. Jeez. And it was like, there was stuff to do about fruit flies and... It was really odd. Oh, my. It was odd. What church was this? This was at Faith. Was it really? This, this was, was at Faith was Assembly. At faith. Jeez. I okay. am fairly certain, but I can't find any references anywhere, and it's driving me nuts. You know, there are a few things that, over time, I've had drawn back to the surface when it comes to things like Bible college, things that I had forgotten about that either in the context of something else or just in the course of conversation with people, I have had kind of dredged back up in my head. But even talking directly about this, it sounds to me like it was so vile that my brain refuses, <laughs> refuses to remember. Yeah. So no, I have no recollection of that, but there were all kinds of really nasty object lessons oh, yeah. that went along with some of these children's Sunday school lessons. Oh, sure. But I don't remember anything about a banana rotting it and was, dying. That that was just an example because I can't remember anything specific. I just remember seeing the film strips and thinking, this is really, really horrible. <laughs> even, <laughs> even mired in the Kool-Aid, we knew what was horrible. Yeah. At least in, in a lot of instances, I always questioned. I always questioned. I was, I was not the right fit for that religion no. at all. 
And I mean, I think that's most of the reason why I'm out because I was always the square peg in the round hole. And I'm kind of glad that my brain doesn't remember that. <laughs> but since we are on the subject of children, the first thing that came up in my research on this was the notion of killing children in the Bible. And there's yeah. an insane amount of this. Killing children is a theme that comes up way, way too often in the Old Testament, yeah. especially in the instance where God kills all the firstborn of Egypt as a result of Pharaoh's callousness. That was incidentally instilled in him by Yahweh. I, you can't make this shit up. Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's right there in Exodus 9, 12 and proceeded to judge him and kill a bunch of innocent kids and cripple their food supply because it was the firstborn children and, and the firstborn the among the animals. Right. So think about that. The firstborn among the animals were probably getting ready for slaughter. They were right. probably about the right age for slaughter. So there went a huge part of the food supply too. And all of this was done because Pharaoh's will had literally been circumvented and his mind seized upon by this maniacal deity who just really, as I, I can't see it as anything else other than that he just wanted an excuse to fuck with people and kill children. This is yeah. what we like to refer to as an asshole. <laughs> yeah. In any context, this is the work of an insufferable asshole. Okay? So that's your God there for you people. That's your daddy. From innocent babies and youngsters to rebellious teenagers, if you had any kind of mental illness or personality disorder and you lived in the Bronze Age under the roof of one or more of this vile deity's clueless followers, you just weren't long for this world. Right. This is the mentality that motivates angry fathers to shoot their daughter's laptops. You ever see that video? Oh, yeah. With that I asshole? That. Oh, I yeah. I was like... It made me so furious. It's like you're cutting her off from basically the world. Yeah. But I mean, when we get into talking about purity culture, you're going to figure out, well, the listeners, we have a good handle on this. But once we get into the subject of purity culture, it's going to open some people's eyes to why this sort of thing happens. What it is that motivates a father to destroy his teenage daughter's property because with all due respect, at that point, she is his property. And if she in any way, shape, or form did him wrong, yeah, then this is the way that it's dealt with. And there are other sources, other influencers, and we're going to talk about a couple of them in just a couple of minutes, that would think that this was hunky-dory. Yeah. You know? I don't know if shooting up a laptop is... Well, I, I fuck that. Of course I know. It's definitely not a reasonable no it's not punishment reasonable. for insubordination pretty much the same way that burning in a lake of fire isn't reasonable punishment for simply not loving someone or something yeah you know but i just mentioned them so let's talk about them michael and debbie pearl they wrote a book a while ago called yeah. to train up a child turning the hearts of the fathers to the children Shell, you know more about this. You've had more exposure to this than I have. So why don't you talk about it a little bit? Well, this is a supposedly a child-rearing manual. But mostly they talk a lot about, like, discipline. And I mean hard discipline. They give you instructions on what kind of rubber hose is best to beat your children, starting at infancy. That is so fucked up. 
It is oh my God. extremely fucked up. And I don't remember if it was in this or if it was somewhere else, but somebody somebody who like was a proponent of this book was talking about how they had a beating session for their children that lasted four hours. Oh, and I'm sweet. thinking to myself, Jesus. how is this not being prosecuted as child abuse? I know. If they're talking about it right out in the open, I mean, where's the division of children and families where they live? I know. And I mean, did the right people not pick up on it? Well, probably not, because who the fuck outside of this circle of theirs right. is even going to hear about it? And it's it's like that Facebook meme, you know, the Facebook meme where people will say, well, I was spanked as a child and I grew up just fine. And I'm like, no, you didn't, because you still want to hit kids. Well, that's true. But you know what? A lot of us yeah. grew up that way. I was spanked, but it's a gray area. I'm, it, I'm not going to sit here on my show and badmouth my mother and some of the some of the decisions that she yeah. made. But one thing that, e- even as a kid, even though she and my grandmother alike didn't always practice what they preached, it was instilled in me as a kid that you don't use corporal punishment out of anger. Right. You use it as a means of making a point, which on its face, uh, you know, there mm-hmm. are different schools of thought on this. I was more in that mindset when my son was little. I did use a little bit of corporal punishment on him, and I stopped when two things occurred. Number one, when we knew that there was something going on with him, we didn't know it was autism at that point, but we knew that there was something that was going on there. And that, for me, was reason enough because maybe he just couldn't understand and he couldn't process what it was that we were trying to get him to do. So that stopped when we, well, before we got his diagnosis, that stopped. The other part of it was that if I was going to be honest with myself, now keep in mind, this was years before anger management. Mm. It was a twofold thing in my mind. It was the, the correction part of it, but there was the anger part of it too. Right. And I just had to make a conscious decision and say, okay, you know what? You know where this is coming from. Be honest with yourself and admit where this is coming from and stop before it goes too far. Right. And there was one instance, one circumstance that I am not going to get into details about. I didn't hit my kid, but there was one instance where my temper reached a point where bad things could have happened. Yeah. And you... You had to call me down from that ledge. Yeah. And you were successful. Mm-hmm. And I'm so thankful. Yes, I and am too. honestly, that was the last time I thought about hitting my kid. Yeah. Was that night. And when I saw your reaction to it, you were pleading with me not to do what I was going to do. And it all just came together in my head at that point. And I can remember the first thing that I did because I was still mired in the anger i looked at you and said this is why he doesn't respect you but then i went into the bedroom and laid down and sobbed because i knew you were right right and at that point it's like okay this ends right here and now you're not doing this right right and there are better ways and it took a long time i think there may still be a part of me that's still processing it and trying to get myself to forgive myself for it yeah but The bottom line is, I didn't do it. And even my mother, when I talked to her about this, I said, but I was going to. And she's like, but you didn't. 
And that's what matters. You didn't. And, you know, most of what happened that night and in the instances before were the culmination of this kind of thinking. I had been on the receiving end of it as a kid. Right. And I had influencers in my life at that point that were telling me that it was okay. Of course. Um, And not only okay, but in certain instances necessary to get the point across to my kid. There's always better ways. You know, we have these very highly developed brains. I've heard people say, well, you can't reason with a child. Well, yes, you can reason with a child, but you have to reason with them on their level. You can't expect them to be little adults. No. But you can reason with a child. And I think that if you try just a little bit harder, instead of cutting a switch or whatever it is that you're going to do to try and exert your will over your kid, reason is a very, very, very very good place to start. Yeah. Because if you want your kids to grow up thinking reasonably and rationally, then you can't give them these extreme examples of what parental will is when they're that young. And that's precisely what uh, Michael and Debbie Pearl, these people were, were not pearls. No. Um, that's precisely what they were advocating for was this strict, um, oh, well, it's right here in the quote. Let me just read it. This is a quote from the first chapter of the book. Training is the conditioning of the child's mind before the crisis arises. It is preparation for future instant unquestioning obedience, reads a passage from the book's first chapter. That unquestioning obedience was in no small part responsible for Trump getting elected. There I said it. It was no small part of him being voted for again by the same people and making so many blindly comply with his charge to march on the Capitol and seize it. They weren't thinking about consequences. They were just following orders from an authority mm-hmm. that they had grown to even seeing how vile and awful he was that they'd grown to love. Right. And they were just following orders, you know, like the Nazis. Mm. I have to wonder how many of those people received upbringings from parents who dealt with any assertion of individuality or defiance in their kids by cutting a switch or worse. You know, how many of them followed the lead of Michael and Debbie Pearl and beat their kids with rubber hoses? You know, I know, I know that there was some of it and probably based on the types of people that marched on marched that infiltrated our capital in an act of insurrection. Probably a lot of them were brought up that way. And it's sad, but this is what happens. Not making excuses for them by any any stretch of the imagination. But it's just like indoctrinating them with with religious doctrine and dogma when they're two years old or younger. Our youth ministry series, the two episodes that we did on that, we discussed how certain organizations out there have Sunday school curricula from birth forward. Yeah. So let the doctrination begin. You're born on Saturday in church on Sunday, and there it begins. And I have to wonder if some research body had the gumption to crunch the numbers. I would bet real money. I I would put real money on the percentage of people in that mob who had been subjected to corporal punishment or out-and-out physical abuse from parents to be pretty fucking high. Mm, I think it would have to be pretty high. And when you're following the example of your heavenly father, it's pretty easy to get into that mindset of this right. is how you, how you treat your kids. 
So let's just look for a couple of minutes at some real numbers here. I did some research on the number of people that God kills in the Bible. Now, when I'm doing research for this show, sometimes I find it difficult to find a lot of material because for whatever reason, these people are good at covering their tracks. Well, yes. And it's difficult sometimes to find specifics. And there were a few questions that I had as I was going through this that I couldn't find specifics for, but that happens pretty much every week. Well, there are some specific numbers for this. People have crunched these numbers in more than one place. There's a website out there called vocative.com. I believe that's how it's pronounced. It's going to be in the show notes. It doesn't go into the numbers, but it does give a little compare and contrast between God and Satan. And there's a neat thing on this site. If you go to the show notes, just click on the link to vocative.com. It's right in there under the heading, all the people God kills in the Bible and the random judgment generator. If you want a good laugh, then oh, you can go in there and just click to find out what God's judgment on you is going to be for that oh. day. Oh, gosh. Some of it is based on stuff that's in the Bible, and some of it is just pure snark, <laughs> which I think is more fun. Yes. But it's a fun thing to look at, kind of like the Shakespeare insult genera generator. Yeah, those you know, are great. I kind of like the Shakespeare insult generator. Well, this is basically the same thing, except you're being smited. <laughs> or smote. Well, I think they say smited, but that's okay. Smote <laughs> might be more grammatically correct. You know, I'm, I, I, have, I don't know which one is funnier, though. I don't know. That's the point. If smited is wrong, I think that makes it funnier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but here we go. 158 entries, including the Apocrypha, that outline all of the kills. And then there's another source that says it's 160. So there may be a couple of instances there that involve more than one person, maybe like the Ananias and Sapphira thing. Yeah. You know, that could have been part of it. But here's the fun part. There are all these kills, 158 distinct entries that make up over 2 million kills. Okay. Satan, on the other hand, has only 10 kills to his credit, all in the book of Job. That accounts for Job's seven sons and three daughters, which many believe to just be allegory anyway. So they weight the quote-unquote historical books of the Bible a whole lot more heavily. So at that point, it kind of looks like Satan's kill count is damn close to, if not realistically, again, putting up the air quotes, realistically, zero. Yeah. It's also fair to mention that those kills only happened because God allowed them. So that makes God an accessory at the very least to those 10 also. So maybe we can just add those to his total since he was complicit. And honestly, whenever somebody is murdered, isn't God complicit? Isn't he the one that allows those things to happen to begin with? So we're just talking about the Bible. Let's talk about history in general. What do those fucking numbers look like? I yeah, mean, really? Jesus. But I say, in my mind, I say that he shares part of the blame even for those 10. So final kill count. Are we ready, folks? Little drum roll here. 2,476,633 kills in the Bible for God. <laughs> Satan's number rests neatly at 10. Yes. I don't know about you, but that tells me all I need to know. Mm. Then I came up with another quote that kind of addresses this little problem in the Bible. It comes from OxfordRE.com. I can only imagine that stands for OxfordReligiousEd.com. Yeah. And there's a little bit of a, a little bit of a lengthy quote here, but I want to read the whole thing because I think that it's relevant. 
Christians have wrestled with divine violence in the Old Testament at least since the 2nd century CE when Marcion led a movement to reject the Old Testament and the Old Testament God. They wanted to impeach God. (laughs) Okay. Moving along with the quote, the movement was substantial enough that key church leaders such as Irenaeus and Tertullian worked to suppress it. Those are big names. If you've never heard them before, look them up. They're big names, and they thought that this was a big enough deal to weigh in. In the modern era, interpreters have taken up the problem with new vigor and have treated it from fresh perspectives. Some attribute the Old Testament's accounts of God destroying and killing to the brutality of the society that produced it, but who produced the society? I mean, come on. But they believe modern people are able to see the matter more clearly. Well, it depends on who the modern people are. Free thinkers, maybe. Evangelicals, oh, I highly doubt it. But let's also remember that Jesus had a violent streak too, which isn't surprising considering that he was rife with those Yahweh midichlorian genetics. Let's call them, let's call them ecclesiastical genetics. And when you look at Mark 11, 12 through 25, we see Jesus going on an anger spree that begins with overturning the tables at the temple gates and then taking out his frustrations on a fig tree. Mm. Classy. And let's not forget that Jesus himself said, and this is a direct quote from Matthew 10, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake We'll find it. Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Oh my God, is there some toxic thinking in there? Yeah. I mean, I could probably spend an hour just picking these verses apart, but I want to get to everything that we want to talk about tonight. So I may bookmark this, you know, as part of another topic. Right. Because I think that it's relevant and I think that it definitely does deserve a little bit more conversation. But we're going to just bookmark it for now. Let's also try to remember that this Prince of Peace also had this to say in Luke 14, 26. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So there is a parallel right there with the his own life and the whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So this is more of that death to self kind of bullshit. Right. That's what this is. When I was in Bible college, they told us that responsible exegesis involved more than one verse. Right. But if you could find multiple instances of the same sentiment, if you go back and look at the original language and it all agrees, then you should be able to glean from that that this is precisely what the writers of this book wanted to convey. So when I see the same words in the same context in two different places, that tells me that this really was something that Jesus wanted to get across to us, this whole notion of dying to the self. 
And, you know, along those lines, apparently I can't be a Christian unless I become this self-deprecating malcontent with no self-image who champions hate over love. We talked about that ad nauseum on the show. But, you know, basically I'm supposed to be a nothing, just a nothing who blindly follows and emulates these very, very love-centered, Christ-mandated attributes to myself and also to the people around me. Right. Because these things are supposed to be projected to the people around us, even the people closest to us. Siblings, parents, spouses, no one is safe. Right. No one is safe from this toxicity. Right. One other thing that I found interesting as I was pouring over how I wanted to present all of this, this didn't surprise me in the least. As a matter of fact, I sort of kind of thought that the number would be a little bit higher, but this is high enough. I actually have worked for Edison Research a couple of times, working at elections, doing exit polls and transporting poll results and that sort of thing. And I've had a few years to get familiar with how they do things. And I can tell you just based on the sheer number of steps that are involved with getting this data from point A to point B that you can trust it. And according to Edison Research, 74% of evangelical voters voted for Trump in the 2020 election and were none too happy, I'm sure, to learn that they are, in fact, a minority. I mean, yeah. 7 million more votes. Their voice really isn't as loud as they think, although I will say this, it's plenty loud enough. I, along with No Illusions, was a little bit, uh, Noah Illusions, one of the hosts of Scathing Atheist. I was just as shocked and amazed as he was that it wasn't a landslide. I mean, this time around, with everything that happened in the last four years, right. I was thinking that this was going to be more of a Reagan-Mondale sort of thing. <laughs> and anyone who remembers back that far remembers that Walter Mondale only managed to win his home state. Yeah. And the other 49 states in the union voted for Ronald Reagan. I think that there were extraneous reasons for that. I don't think it had anywhere near as much to do with Walter Mondale as it did with Geraldine Ferraro. Right. But but that was the kind of landslide. I wasn't hoping for a 50-state landslide, but I would have been happy with like 40. Yeah. And we really didn't get that, which surprised me. We got a lot. We Obviously, Joe Biden got enough to win, and yeah. by a sizable margin – but I'm still amazed. Yeah. I'm still amazed that so many of them, well, I'm not amazed that so many evangelicals held their ground, but I am amazed that the numbers only fluctuated a little bit within 5% of the last election. Those numbers went down just a little bit. So maybe we can get that 5% to listen to us and come over to the other side. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm just thinking... I'm thinking that these are the ones that kind of have a brain in their head and saw this guy for what he was. And I can remember right before the election, well, not really right before, maybe over the summer, right. when I was out and about, I saw a sign on somebody's lawn that said, I'm a Republican, not a fool, Biden 2020. Yeah. So that looks to me like possibly one of those five percenters that yeah. defected over and I also remember, this is the other thing that really surprised me that it wasn't more of a landslide, was within a month of the election last time around, the hashtag Trump regrets yeah. was trending on Twitter for a while. 
Yeah. And there were a lot, like just within the first month, who were like, what the fuck was I thinking? <laughs> so I honestly thought that we would win by more. Yeah. But I'm just glad. I'm just glad that I, mean, I say we. I, I wasn't part of the campaign. I'm just glad that <laughs> Biden, Biden won by more. Right. It may not have been a landslide, but it was nowhere near the close race that Trump Clinton was. That's for yeah. sure. And it definitely helped. Having that 5% out of the picture definitely helped. The other thing that I was thinking about as I was going through this is the fact that there were, if you looked closely, if you were watching the news, especially if you switched between channels a few times, you would notice that there were plenty of crosses Mm -hmm. and Christian imagery and signs with scripture verses being held up by the insurrectionists before they just abandoned everything and stormed the place. Yeah. There was a lot of that. And although there isn't a whole hell of a lot of this being mentioned in the news, it's 100% true. There's audio of it. And you can actually see in the one video that I actually saw of this, you can see right off to the side that some of these people actually erected an actual factual gallows. Yeah outside the Capitol building, calling for the hanging of Mike Pence for refusing to attempt to stop the Electoral College vote. Yeah. So I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Mm. You know, bookmark that verse. I really think at this point, I want to move away from the biblical stuff and also a little bit more away from the political stuff. And let's talk about the mindset a little bit more now that we've laid the foundation with the Bible. We talked about print media. I'm going to mention another book in a little while. And there's a lot of divisive literature out there. But it's been a long time since I've read any kind of Christian book. So I don't even know what's out there at this point. I don't even know what other sources to point to. But the bottom line for me is that anything that touts any kind of evangelical thought is going to have a level of toxicity Mm -hmm. when it comes to how people think and behave that you could almost pick up any book out there, even if it's a book about love, probably especially if it's a book about love, Mm. and find the same kind of toxic principles weighing in here. Maybe not the kind of violent imagery that we're talking about tonight, but certainly divisive imagery and things that get people to think the wrong way about those sorts of things. And all of it just sort of builds on each other. So you get skewed versions of what love is. You get skewed versions of what righteousness is. You get skewed versions of what things like righteous anger are, because that's not what it was last week. But in the interest of shining the light on all the types of popular media that fall under this cover. I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about Christian music. Mm. Now, my original thought on this was to do an entire episode on nothing but violent and militaristic themes in Christian music. There is a lot. I probably could. I probably could do an entire episode on that. But I feel like we need to kind of deal with the trifecta because it all builds on each other, just like I said a minute ago. In terms of music, you can look as far back as the hymns, and one hymn in particular that has known its share of controversy over the years, and also quite recently, 
And I'm talking about onward Christian soldiers, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before, etc., and so on. Enough of those words have passed my lips already. Yes. But one thing I found interesting, just doing a little bit of research on this particular hymn, came from a website called ChristianCentury.org, which is run by the Presbyterian Church. And it says, and I quote, and once again, for the third hymnal in a row, Presbyterians will not find onward Christian soldiers in the mix. Good riddance. This hymn with its hut two, three, four tune and its warring call for Christians to raise the battle flag has long outlived its usefulness. And then in another place, it says, if the church loses this sense of absurdity, and starts believing it really is some kind of army with sufficient strength to swat down our enemies and exert our will, then our worship becomes idolatry and our life demonic. Wow. Let me just read part of that again. If the church loses this sense of absurdity and starts believing it really is some kind of army with sufficient strength to swat down our enemies... What did we see last week? Really? What did we see? This is how most evangelicals want you to think. Yes. The Presbyterian Church is a little bit more mainline. They're a little bit more vanilla in the way that they do things. Right. And I think that it was a very pragmatic decision the first time, the second time, and the third time to leave this song out. This one hymn is not responsible for the rioting, no. but it lays a foundation that we're going to talk about just a little bit more right now. Let's talk about the battle hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is tramping out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Isn't that just happy, happy, happy? <laughs> the funny part is the tune itself has a real bold and almost arrogant feel to it too. Oh, definitely. Oh, totally. And then we were talking about Sunday school and children's ministry. Yeah. How about I'm in the Lord's army? Yeah. I may never march in the infantry, ride Ride in in the the cavalry, shoot the artillery. artillery. I may never soar or the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Honestly, that's an old camp song. And we used to say the last verse as I just want to be happy. (laughs) Okay. All right. <laughs> so it's like I, I grew up singing that, but with the last line was just totally different. And it's they, like, they secularized it nicely. Yes, I, they did. I did not escape the quote unquote Christian version of that. Yeah. I mean, complete with learning hand gestures. Oh. You know, we marched in, in the infantry. infantry. We rode in the cavalry. You can't see it, but no. we're doing them. Yes. And, I we mean, all know them. Yeah, we were kids and we still know them. That's how deep this shit gets in there. Oh, yeah. One of the ones that was controversial when we were in Bible college was a worship song called Blow the Trumpet in Zion. Yes. And there were a lot of people that actually didn't like that song because, and I quote, you're singing judgment down upon yourselves, <laughs> which there is a degree of truth to that. But I think that anytime you let these songs into your head and sing them boldly, you're bringing judgment down on your own sense of rational thought. So yeah, you're bringing down judgment on yourself, but you're also becoming more judgmental as your brain tries to deflect that stuff too. Right. 
Then there's the battle belongs to the Lord and heavenly armor will enter the land. No weapon formed against us shall stand. When the enemy presses in hard, do not fear. Take courage, my friend. Your redemption is near. And also a real dark and foreboding kind of... It's in a minor key. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a real dark foreboding element to that song. God's got an army. And there were a couple of these, but we're talking right now about the campy beginning of the youth meeting worship song. God's got an army marching through the land. Deliverance is their cry and there's healing in their hand. There's everlasting joy and gladness in their heart. And in this army, I've got a part. Why does it have to be an army? Why can't it just be a group of happy people getting together to worship? Right. Why does it have to be an army? Yes. Because the rest of the song doesn't really have a militaristic theme to it. No, it doesn't. I am a servant of God, another one that we sang a lot. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. All those who rise up against me shall fall. I will not fear what the devil may bring me. I am a servant of God. And I think that's most of it. Yeah. I think that's most of the song. that They called them worship choruses for a reason. Yes. And then you've got the one that's based on Romans 16, 19, where they keep repeating Romans 16, 19 says over and over, and then it's be excellent in what is good, be innocent of evil, and the God of peace, the God of peace, and this is, it's in the verse, not just the song, the God of peace will crush Satan. Yes, God will crush him underneath your feet. So more violence, more violent imagery. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Yes. Um, The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. These were all songs that I grew up spiritually singing and never thought twice about it. Mm -hmm. Never thought twice about the kinds of thoughts that were being put in my head and how I was being groomed to think like this. Yeah. Oh, definitely. There was a real sense of, okay, you get powered up for the rest of the week so you can do battle against the enemy of the world. Oh, yeah. That phrase took on a lot of different personas, and a lot of them had nothing to do with Satan. just had to do with things they didn't like. Oh, yeah. But, of course, anything they don't like, they have to stamp with Satanic. I think we talked about that, like, last week or the week before. When we were talking about hypnosis, yeah, and there was this progression of, well, it's not good for this reason, and it's not good for this reason. Oh, and in case that wasn't enough, Satan. Mm, yeah. So that really is it. All of these things that they don't like, well, okay, if we can't convince you not to be part of this, or if we can't convince you to see our point of view on this, Satan. Yeah. You know, that that's pretty much it. Satan is basically their punchline for everything. Yep. Absolutely. And all of these songs are, well, most of, them, most of those songs are older than we are. <laughs> they were being sung in church oh, sure. youth groups and camp meetings long before either you or I were a glimmer in our daddy's eyes. Mm. But let's fast forward just a little bit to the 1980s. The 1980s was the decade of all things pop. Oh, yeah. That was true in the secular world, and it was true in Christian rock, too, because Christian rock was trying really, really hard to keep up with their secular counterparts. Yes. One of the biggest offenders when it comes to violent militaristic themes was a group called Petra. Now, I'm going to make this disclaimer. I saw these guys in concert a bunch of times, and I never really got a bad vibe. No. Off of any of them. I never got a bad vibe off of Bob Hartman. I 
never got a bad vibe off of Greg Vols or John Schlitt or anyone else in the group. I think that they did what they did, just like a lot of people in this religion. They did what they did because they thought that they were doing good. Of course. And I thought that they were sincere. There was always a part during the concert where Bob would have a few things to say and give a little bit of a talk. I don't recall there always being an altar call at these concerts, but there was definitely like a mini sermon that was plugged in there. And I saw nothing but honesty and sincerity from these guys, but they were a product of the same stinking thinking. And there was a lot, there was a lot of this imagery in the lyrics to their songs. Let's just look at if I, I got a bullet list Mm-hmm. Of songs by Petra that I just that just sort of popped into my head. You know why? Because all the lyrics are still in there. You listen to a lot of Petra, though. Oh yeah. I didn't listen to nearly as much as you did. Oh yeah. Well, I had maybe two albums. I mean. Petra was one of my go-to bands. I had a lot of their stuff. Let's just look at a couple of these song titles without even getting into the lyrics. You can glean enough just from the titles of these songs to know what they were about and to understand that at least from the standpoint of logic and reason, they were very divisive. Right. So you've got songs with titles like Minefield and Defector and This Means War, my personal favorite. I mean, let's just put it right the fuck out there. (laughs) He came, he saw, he conquered. Occupy, All the King's Horses, Dead Reckoning, one of my personal favorites, Killing My Old Man, which they got into some trouble for. Mm -hmm. There was a little bit of backlash on that one when Never Say Die came out. I'm pretty sure that was the album. You see, I even remember the freaking albums that these songs are on. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, you were the Christian music guy. Yeah. At a lot of, like, functions and stuff. Oh, yeah. It's just sort of like, you had a buttload. I did a lot of DJing. I don't know if I mentioned it on the show before or not. But I used to DJ the Christian skating rallies that were put on by the section. That's how the Assemblies of God kind of divides things up. So we had these sectional skate rallies on the first Monday of the month. And I, for about three years there, was the DJ for that. So I kind of had a responsibility to keep up with Christian music because that's what we were playing. Right. So, yeah, there was a lot of Petra in the mix, a lot of songs from a lot of these albums. Never Say Die does predate my quote-unquote Christian walk by maybe a year or two. Yeah. But I still remember hearing about all these allegations of them advocating patricide, (laughs) killing your father. No. Well, this is yet another one of those songs that deals with the death of the self-life, which is a very sinister, very uncomfortable, very macabre sort of theme but it shows up more than once on this list dead reckoning was about that too learn to die daily is part of the song that's some of the lyrics then there's for annie which if you recall is a song about a girl who commits suicide yeah i vaguely remember that one so we've got for annie by patrick no one ever noticed annie weeping yes you remember that one and there's that one part in the song about how she grabs a jar of pills. The medicine that cures becomes the poison that kills. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, it's so nice that they 
rhymed pills with kills. Yes, That's just, that was Bob Hartman for you. That was lyrics. That, that was that was his way of doing things. They laid him in his tomb. They thought they'd sealed his doom. You know, that's another one. They had a compilation yes. out there that was called War and Remembrance. Right. I don't know how they got past the copyright because that was also a miniseries on TV only a couple of years before. But they got away with it. That tells you everything that you need to know about what they think their key messaging is. Right. At least it says it to me. Yeah. So we're going to quit picking on Petra because, again, these were kind of well-meaning guys who... Yeah. Really, they put out some good music. I can't even begin to deny that they had talent. And their music was very listenable. And their lyrics, because of things like that, were memorable. Right. So if I just really sat down and took the time to think about them, I could probably quote from beginning to end pretty much every song on this list. Yeah. But we're going to kind of leave Bob and company alone now and move on to a band called The Allies. Now, there's not a whole lot to say about this band, but one of the things that I noticed when their first album came out, which I think was around 85 or 86, somewhere yeah, in that neighborhood. Yeah, somewhere in that neighborhood. Their self-titled album featured a very militaristic theme. You've got guys in battle fatigues and helmets mm-hmm. and looking like they're about to storm the beach at Normandy. Yeah. All right. That's pretty much what it looked like. And the one big single off of that album was a song called Surrender that also had a real militaristic kind of thing going on, but it also had some other really weird imagery that you can get on YouTube and take a look. It was just odd. And let's not forget that this band was headed by frontman Bob Carlyle, who, and I'm sorry to make you remember this, was responsible for the quasi-incestuous and pedophiliac anthem of purity culture called Butterfly Kisses. Remember that song? Yeah, it's creepy. Oh my God. And like one of the worst lines in this song, as I'm recalling all of this, this is the line that always sticks out in my head. You know how much I love you, Daddy, but if you don't mind, I'm only going to kiss you on the cheek this time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is uh, creepy. Yeah, it gives me the douche chills just thinking about it, <laughs> let alone having to read that shit out loud. Yeah. But, you know, I'm doing this so that you don't have to. That's, you know, <laughs> I do this for my listeners. Yes. I take one for the team, at least one for the team every single week. <laughs> but, you know, like I said, there's not a whole lot else to say about that, only that this caught my eye and it sold the album to me because, honestly, I started equating it a little bit more with Petra. Because that was what their theme was through a lot of their music. Mm -hmm. So the album art drew me to that band. Oh, yeah. So that's where my head was at that time. See that? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about a lovely human being named Carmen Licardello, a.k.a. Carmen as his stage name. Oh, Um, jeez. I will refrain from going into detail about the time that I met Carmen, but I have met Carmen. And let's just say I stopped being a fan of his music that day Mm. and still had to work his entire fucking concert. Yeah. Because they were at our church. He was not a friendly guy. Let's just put it that way. Real prima donna type thought that he was part of the Rat Pack. You know, he acted like that. But there are several, several of his songs. He had his own version of God's Got an Army that was almost a direct ripoff of the original with a few new lines 
that yeah. were kind of added in there. It wasn't exactly the same, but the sentiments were the same. And the lyrics were very similar. It was one of those sorts of things. And I'm going to, you're already laughing because you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Yeah. Okay. A little bit of levity to ease the tension here. When I was doing my internship at my home church in Poughkeepsie, we were working on a street outreach that we were going to be doing later in the summer. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that the youth pastor at the time, who would, he was the, the guy who came in after my youth pastor. My youth pastor was then the associate pastor of this church. Yeah. And they brought in a new youth pastor. And he was also, I, I think he pulled double duty. I think he was the music pastor mm-hmm. and kind of pulling double duty, at least for a little while there. If, you know, the, the timeline gets a little skewed, but I think that's what it was. So he had a particular talent for putting together music. So he put together this little chorus with some of the kids in the youth group. And when we collectively were rehearsing this song, we sang this Carmen version of this song, God's Got an Army. And there's a part in this song where Carmen yells, let me hear a war cry. And of course, everybody is like yelling at the top of their lungs in the song. Right. But when we were rehearsing this for our outreach, people weren't all that into like screaming like banshees in the middle no. of the church sanctuary. Yeah. So instead of a war cry, the youth pastor said, let me hear a war cry. And everyone responded with, hey, <laughs> it was so anticlimactic. But there was more enthusiasm when we were doing it for an audience. But, you know, for for practice purposes, no one was really into it. And it told me everything I needed to know about what they thought of having to do this song in the first place. Let me hear a war cry. Yep. And we all actually got a good laugh out of that because everyone just had the same idea at the same time. And then we all kind of looked around at each other. It's like, you too, huh? (laughs) But there were other songs by Carmen that were, you know, just as violent. Well, I I don't know if I want to call them violent, but they were violent themes. Yeah. You know, the same kind of aggressiveness that you see in a lot of these other examples, like his, you want to call it a song, The Champion, that basically frames the atonement in the context of a boxing match. The atonement is settled with a 40-day-long boxing match between Jesus and Satan. That's what the song is about. And the real scary part is I could probably quote that from beginning to end, too, if I really wanted to. It's that far in there. Don't. It's just not. Oh, God, no. (laughs) In the vast expanse of a timeless place. Okay, I'll stop. Yeah, that's Um, all I need. That's it. (laughs) That's all anybody needs. Righteous invasion of truth or riot. Yes, that's great. Mm, Yeah, we want a righteous invasion of truth. We want a riot. Okay, what more can I say about that? Mm. And then there's Jericho, the shout of victory, which I actually thought about when I heard about these yahoos marching around the Capitol thinking that they were going to fall at like the walls of Jericho. That was the first thing I thought about was this idiotic song. But back in the day, we didn't think that it was idiotic. Right. It was very evocative, and so was the champion. And that was all completely by design because it's more of that signature evangelical emotionalism and sensationalism that we like to talk about so much on this show. So there was a power element to that song. Right. And 
it was unfortunately the first thing that came to mind when I heard about them doing that. Mm. My only solace in the fact that my brain went there so quickly was that it also went to the place that said, yeah, no, this is not something that's ever going to work, no matter how hard they try. Yeah. But I could see people like carrying Walkmans and playing that song as they as oh, they, uh, as they marched around. I could yeah. see it in my head. Another lesser known one that I actually had an affection for and did see in concert, he opened up for Mylon Lefevre and Broken Heart right. at one point, a guy named Morgan Cryer, who had an album called Fuel on the Fire. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lovely image for you, too. Yeah. Nice guy. I met him. He was yeah. actually a really nice guy. He's a good old boy. <laughs> but there was a song. Well, there were two songs. The one that the title is based off of was one about prayer in school. Right. And there's a line in there. They're pouring fuel on the fire. So, so it's kind of on the other side. It's not the Christians pouring fuel on the fire. The words are, they're pouring fuel on the fire, trying to stop what God desires. Mm. So it kind of brings it around the other way. But then there's a song called Underneath Your Feet, which basically it's everything that you can think about in life, all the power in the world underneath your feet, every man, woman, boy, and girl underneath your feet. There is no place where I can go that you aren't in control. When I wake and when I sleep underneath your feet. Wow. Is that supposed to make me happy? No, I mean, that come on. sound good. What do Yahweh feet smell like? Mm. Underneath your feet. I'm sure they stink. <laughs> then we're going to go right back and invoke the name of Steve Taylor once again. Yeah. And we talked about the song Jenny a few weeks ago, where this is a song about a girl who kills herself because she falls for a carny and has sex with him. Then he's got a song called Lifeboat, which we just watched the video for a few nights ago because we got into a discussion about it. Yeah. Where at the end of this song, not just the video, but the end of the song, um, an entire classroom full of young kids gets up out of their seats and kills their teacher by shoving her out a window. Yes. Now, this last one, I'll also add the disclaimer, it was kind of a protest song. Right. But again, just the themes of some of these songs... Over My Dead Body is another song by Steve Taylor. Over My Dead Body, Redemption Draweth Nigh. Over My Dead Body, I Hear a Battle Cry. Try and blow out the fire. You're fanning the flames. We're going to rise up from the ashes till we're ashes again. Mm. That's the chorus to that song. So, yeah, a little bit of a hard driving theme there. Mm. And one that could certainly be considered a bit insightful on its face. And that's insight, not as in clarity or as in insight, (laughs) I-N-C-I-T-E. Let's talk about a little group called Striper. Mm -hmm. I've had some recent dealings with Michael Sweet, who went on social media over the summer whining like a baby that we couldn't have stadium concerts. Well, if these people... Well, the powers that be understand that filling that stadium would be stupid. That's most of it, Mike. And I actually got my mouth taped shut on his (laughs) Facebook. I'm not allowed to comment there anymore because I invaded it with just a little bit too much truth. So I've been a fan of Striper since 85. I wouldn't call myself a fan now, especially with their last couple of albums. They started out. I believe it was either in 83 or 84 when their first album came out. It was called The Yellow and Black Attack. There's another one of those wonderful words, attack. But if the title of the album wasn't enough, 
the cover should tell you all you need to know about them. And this was another one of their covers that eventually got upgraded so that it didn't yeah. have this. But yeah. the original cover, and I have the vinyl for this, <laughs> is of four missiles that have serial numbers on them that coincide with the initials of all the band members. Uh-huh. You had TG for Tim Gaines. You had OF for Oz Fox, RS for Robert Sweet, and MS for Michael Sweet. And they were all aimed at the earth with the hand of God pointing. Yeah. So that should have raised a little bit of a red yeah. flag. But at 13 years old, yeah, not really. No. You just think the album art is cool. Well, I thought that all their album art was cool. I thought that the, the Devil was pretty damn cool, too. Yeah, I have that one. Oh, yeah. I've got the pre-edited version, too. And since we talked about it, and talk about it a little bit out of order, but since we just talked about it, there was To Hell With The Devil that, looking back at it, had some pretty intense themes. Yeah. For starters, they dared to put a pentagram on a Christian album. Yes. And I'm sorry, Satan looked a whole hell of a lot like Michael. I'm just putting that out there. It looks a lot more like Michael than anything else. But the theme of this album cover, you had really vengeful looking angels. And then you had Satan being shoved into a pit. That's pretty much what it was. And it was so controversial. I think the pentagram was the biggest problem there. Yeah, But this thing was so controversial that a couple of years later, they restamped it with just this black cover that had the band name and the name of the album. And that was it. And it started becoming known as the Black Album for Striper. Yeah. Yeah. There have been a few bands that have had the Black Album, the White Album, but this was theirs. And it was a reissue of To Hell with the Devil with a slightly less disturbing cover. Yeah. I always thought the cover was cool. I also didn't like the pentagram, but I thought the cover was cool. Skip backwards one album, Soldiers Under Command. I believe this one came out in 85. Yeah. It was one of three albums that were among my first, oh, four, four albums that were among my first. Because when I discovered that there was such a thing as Christian rock, one of the first things that I did was go into our local Christian bookstore and pick up some vinyl. Yeah. And that day, here's an eclectic mix for you. That day I walked home with Striper's Yellow and Black Attack, Soldiers Under Command, Petra's Not of This World, <laughs> and Amy Grant's Unguarded. Oh my gosh. I actually bought an Amy Grant album. These that... these were my first four. <laughs> and I did I bought a couple Amy Grant albums. I thought oh, actually, yeah. even now, I would listen to Lead Me On. Yeah. Just for the artistic value. She did do some good stuff. Yeah. But back on the subject of Striper, you look at this album cover in particular, and if the title isn't enough, they're standing there in front of, it was either a tank was, or some kind of military vehicle, like yeah. a big Humvee or something. I don't remember precisely it what it was. a weird looking tank. But they were holding guns. Yep. And they had the ammo belts yeah. around around like their- bandoliers. Their, yeah, yeah. They had those draped across their chests. So real warlike and militaristic theme here. And of course, it's a metal album, so the title track is also this real hard-driving thing with very catchy lyrics. Oh, yeah. Very, very catchy lyrics. And again, if I wanted to, I could quote the whole damn thing, but I could quote that whole damn album if I wanted to, too. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to fast forward a bunch of years. They've had a couple of disturbing covers in their time. They've had a couple that have left me feeling like, okay, what exactly are we trying to convey here? Mm. Like Reborn. The cover for Reborn, I thought, was a little gross. 
One of their latest studio albums is one called God Damn Evil. I kid you not, they decided to call it this, and there is a song by the same title on no. this album. I myself have not bothered to listen to it. I'm over Striper yeah. at this point. I'm well over Striper, especially this past summer with Mike and the stuff that he was saying. Yeah. But then there were a lot of Christian metal bands out there. Baron Cross was another one that comes to mind right away with songs like Killers of the Unborn, which, you know, it's a heavy metal pro-life anthem. You had imaginary music that had a bunch of kind of disturbing themes in it. It was along the same lines of Drive, he said by Steve Taylor. It's about a guy living a double life. Right. But there was some kind of disturbing imagery in that song. Dying Day, which was kind of a protest song, a very late protest song about the Vietnam War. Wow. They made their mark with that kind of content also. But there were also a lot of other Christian metal bands in the 80s that had violent and apocalyptic themes that were part of what they did and major selling points to what they were doing. Um, The End Times was a huge theme in Christian metal in the 80s and 90s. Let's just look at the names of some of these bands. We had bands with names like Vengeance Rising and Stricken with a Y, so it looked a little bit more like Striper. Yeah. And I, for a while there, thought it was supposed to be Striken and then learned that it was Stricken. Sacred Warrior, Holy Soldier, Blood Good. Okay, it's the name of one of the band members, so we'll give them a hall pass on that. They could have come up with a different name, though. I'm just saying, guys, yeah. Blood Good, you could have come up with a different name. Mortification, The Crucified, Heaven's Force, Recon, Warlord, Rosanna's Raiders, and so much more. Oy. I mean, that's just a small sampling of what was out there. One of my favorite metal bands, though, was a little band that I actually got introduced to by one of my stoner friends in high school, because this was a dude that I had successfully led to the Lord, and he went, I don't know how he found this stuff without the internet, but he found some of the most obscure Christian metal out there, and always (laughs) shared with me everything that he found, and he would bootleg everything he found, and make sure that I had copies so that I would get a chance to hear it too. And I got really into this band called Saint. Now, Saint had its own share of violent lyrics, and most of their stuff was built up on End Times Hysteria. They had albums with titles like Warriors of the Sun, Too Late for Living, Time's End, In the Battle, and Crime Scene Earth. Wow. These were titles of their albums. That's before you even get into any of the lyrics, okay? These were just the titles of the albums. But that band was one of my favorites, and they were kind of the Iron Maiden of Christian rock, sort of kind of without the talent. Yeah. (laughs) No, that's that's mean. They actually did have talent, Yeah. but they were trying a little bit too hard, I think, to be Iron Maiden. Mm -hmm. And Iron Maiden also had a lot of end times kind of imagery in their music too, like 666, The Number of the Beast, and all of that. Yeah. So these guys were doing their level best to emulate that. Right. And I wasn't the only one who liked them in our house either. Remember when Liam was little and I put on that CD? (laughs) Oh, my God. And one of the first times that I ever saw him groove to anything was a song by Saint. I think it was Primed and Ready was the name of the song. (laughs) Primed and Ready. The end of time is near. 
I don't remember that, but I do remember that. You know, yeah. it's really vague. If you heard it, you'd remember it instantly mm-hmm. because it has a very distinct riff at the very beginning too. Ah. Honestly, it's one of those bands that I would probably still listen to just, you know, for the nostalgia value. Right. But I haven't heard them in a while. And so much of the stuff that I had from them was bootlegged. Who the hell knows where it is anymore? Now, I'm guessing that there are people out there who are sitting there asking themselves or, you know, asking me to themselves, why is all this oldie moldy Christian rock from 30 plus years ago even relevant to a discussion of events in 2020? Just out of curiosity, did you get a good look at the ages of a lot of the insurrectionists that stormed the Capitol? Yeah. I mean, there were younger people in there for sure, but a lot of them were our age and older. And we are 49 and 51 respectively. I won't say which one is which, (laughs) but that's the age group that we're looking at here. So if we grew up, quote unquote, spiritually with this music going through our heads, well, you know what? A lot of these people did too. A lot of them did. Mm-hmm. So they had all of this stuff being shoved in there with the music that they were listening to because, you know, you've got to come out from among them and be separate. So let's listen to some Christian rock, <laughs> you know, didn't even get into some of the other metal bands that were out there that are now running through my head and some of the lyrics that are running through my head. But I think we spent enough time on that. One of the other things that I have a tendency to beat myself up for a little bit was the fact that we talked about it earlier that I was the one that was blaring a lot of this music oh, yeah. at the end of youth group meetings and running those skate rallies where mm-hmm. I was pumping all of this stuff into people's heads once a month and introducing people to a lot of new music because I can't count the number of times that someone heard something that they liked. It's like, who is this? Right. And I would introduce them to a new Christian band. It's like, yes, that's an hour of their day that they're not going to be listening to K104. You know right. what I mean? So I thought that... Every single time someone asked me who the song was by and I was able to tell them and I was able to steer them in the direction of some Christian music that I was doing them a favor. Well, mea culpa and all that. Water Mm -hmm. under the bridge. It is what it is. Yeah. And that's just that. Like I said before, you got to let go of this stuff. While we're on the subject of music-centered violence, what about the Nutters? That convinced me and a lot of other people to smash and burn their secular records and tapes back in the 80s. Gary Greenwald made an event of it as part of his Rockabye by Baby seminars on Satan and rock music. When we were teenagers, we were taught to embrace the adrenaline rush of, quote, destroying our enemy. Think about it. It's not baseless alarmism. What we learn when we're young follows us into adulthood. Hell, even the Bible agrees with that. Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not stray from it. Right. It's framed as a promise, but it really is a warning. Mm-hmm. And while we're on the subject of the 80s, I just want to mention one other piece of pulp Christian trash print media, a little book called Dead Air by a guy we've mentioned before on this show named Bob Larson or at least allegedly by Bob Larson. He was cashing in on the satanic panic, um, maybe a couple of years too late, but it was still in the cultural mindset and certainly in the evangelical mindset when it came out in 1991. This was a collection of 379 two-sided single-ply sheets of toilet paper. And it came out on the heels of a very lucrative career in chicanery that floated him through the bulk of the 1980s. Bob Larson, I think we talked about him during our episode on the Satanic Panic. Right. 
and how we used to run his show at the station that I worked at and how I was so much of a fan that we only ran the first hour and I would record the second hour because it was an hour's drive home. Yeah. So I would record the second hour of the show and listen to it on my way home. Yeah. After work. Yeah. That's how into this dude I was. I went out looking just for a little bit of information on this just to see if maybe it was still in print. And it is, although Amazon in the US, I don't think, is offering it. I only found it on Amazon Canada, Amazon.ca. But it's still out there. And it's also on Goodreads.com. You can get it there. And they positively endorse it on that site because, of course, they do. But I also, kind of by accident, came up with a website. I love (laughs) the name of this website. It doesn't sound terribly authoritative on its face, but you can verify what they say here. This comes from a website called weirdcrap.com. I shit you not. (laughs) Crap shit. Weirdcrap.com. And it comes from a page that is completely dedicated to Bob Larson. And here's a quote about the book Dead Air. It was labeled, quote, Christian porn by Christianity Today. I remember that well. Oh, yeah. And contained gory and graphic details that Bob got from many of his callers who allegedly were involved in satanic crimes. Allegedly. Most of them were plants. Then someone went and squealed on Bob. He apparently was not the author of the book and allegedly paid a ghostwriter who later revolted against him. From then on, Bob allegedly received tons of death threats and spent more time hawking books and begging for cash than he did talking and taking calls, which is true. But I, I, you know, what I remember of Bob Larson, I listened to him a lot in the 80s. I must have started listening to him around 86. And that was always his MO, his way of doing things. Mm -hmm. So that's our section on music with just a little nod to this little trash fire of a tome (laughs) that Bob Larson published under his own name. So we've got print media, we've got music, let's talk about movies. And we're going to work a little bit more in the present with these, because I can remember seeing a lot of Christian movies back in the Mm -hmm. 80s, and even into the early 90s. One of our favorite things to do on the weekend was to go to the Christian cinema in Ambler, Pennsylvania, Yeah, which I'm pleased to report is now just a normal movie theater. Yeah, But they had a huge Christian bookstore. I don't know how much music I picked up there yeah. because they oh, had like bargain basement prices oh, yeah. on a lot of the music. I got tapes. I got VHS videos there mm-hmm. and spent next to nothing. I mean, oh, yeah. a couple of bucks a tape and the cinema was free. They passed the plate, but the movies were free and we were turned on to this by a couple of our other friends and just started making it a regular thing. So we were watching Christian movies back then And they didn't have anywhere near the divisive themes that the newer ones do. Yeah. It's gotten bad. But just like I said about the people who were listening to all that music in the 80s, and here they are now, well, some of them are making movies too. So a lot of that stuff is rubbed off. I'll plug them again. God Awful Movies, part of Puzzle in a Thunderstorm, which is a bigger atheist podcast network. This show has done a lot with the movies on a streaming service called Pure Flix. (laughs) And when I was just looking at the names of some of these movies, I immediately remembered episodes of GAM, God Awful Movies. So Pure Flix is a Christian movie streaming service that carries a price tag that's more than Disney Plus. It's $10.99 a month, and it has a fraction of the content. And you can't really browse anything from the homepage. Right. You kind of have to dig around on Google a little bit so that you can actually get in there 
and see what's going on. But the site describes its content offerings as, quote, positive entertainment that changes lives, inspires hearts, and lifts the spirit. What you actually get are recurring themes of gun violence, physical and sexual violence against women, particularly young girls, and you get a lot of end times hysteria. Yeah. That's what you get. Mm -hmm. That's your positive entertainment that changes lives, inspires hearts, and lifts the spirit. Yeah. It's those three things predominantly on that site. And yeah, there's a lot of feel-good Hallmark content kind right. of stuff on there too. Well, yeah. But at the same time, you get this shit. And they're trying, trying, and they're trying so hard to be relevant and put out stuff that's Hollywood level. And that means doing what Hollywood does. And what are the things that sell Hollywood movies? Action, violence, sex. And you can find all of this in movies on Pure Flix. Yep. I can't even believe some of the things that I saw just watching these trailers for yeah. these movies. The stuff that's in them is, it's like, I look at this and I'm like, we would have gotten in trouble showing some of these movies at the student center. Yeah. I oh, mean, yeah. I got enough heat for showing Star Wars at the student center, okay? <laughs> but this stuff, anyone just walking in and not knowing what it is would want to know what the hell it was doing on that TV. I guarantee it. I saw enough shots of gun violence and victimization of women just in the trailers of some of these movies to figure out that the site description really is a crock of shit. Yeah. They also have that kind of content, but it's not the stuff that's the biggest draw, not by a long shot. But you see, Christians don't see it that way. They kind of like watching women being objectified. And we all know that they love their guns. Mm -hmm. So this is stuff that they can write off just so long as it has some kind of gospel theme messaging in there somewhere. They can write it off. But of course, there's the whole no weapon formed against me shall prosper thing that sticks in the back of their minds whenever they think about things like gun violence and the portrayal of these things. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. Sure, because you've got your Glock in your holster, you got your 357 cocked and ready, and then you got your AK-47 slung over your shoulder, all loaded for bear. You're good. There's also a lot of content on this site about human trafficking. They really have a perverse affection for right. the subject of human trafficking. Let's actually look at the descriptions of some of these movies. I got a short list here that. I just want to run through and give the descriptions as they appear on imdb.com. There's a movie on there called Cage No More. We were just talking about human trafficking. That's what this is about. Inspired by real events, but not portraying them very well. <laughs> Cage No More is the story of Aggie Prejean, a godmother on a desperate search to find her two goddaughters, Sky and Elle, who have been kidnapped by their sinister father. As the details behind the girl's disappearance begin to unravel, it's discovered that he has taken them overseas to be sold into slavery to settle his drug debt. How completely positive and life-changing and inspirational. Mm. Then there's, this is a series. I didn't realize it was a series. I thought it was a movie, but it's a series called Sons of Thunder. Yes. This is the pure flicks answer to Sons of Anarchy. And it is loaded with violent themes cushioned by this token, very hokey gospel message. <laughs> Just recently, the Gamcast guys did this one, Beckman. Yes. And all I can think of is Jeff Speakman, the perfect weapon. That's the first <laughs> thing I thought of when I saw this. 
Is it supposed to sound a little like Batman? I have no idea. I have no idea. But he's not Batman. This movie and the story comes from the addled mind of a guy named David A.R. White, who's responsible for a lot of the content on Pure Flix. And I'm pretty sure, doesn't he he run run Pure Flix? So let's look at the synopsis of Beckman. A contract killer becomes the reverend of an L.A. church. (laughs) I, I can't even get through this with a straight face. A contract killer becomes the reverend of an L.A. church until a cult leader and his minions kidnap his daughter. Just try and put this together in your head. You don't have to. It's on the site. Um, Blinded by vengeance, he cuts a bloody path across the city. The only thing that can stop him is his newfound faith. Wait a minute. He's the minister of this church, but his newfound faith is going to keep him from murdering people? Mm. uh, What? 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 know about that this one also features a female character who likes to reminisce about her promiscuous past in ways that do absolutely nothing to advance the plot line i guess the thought here was that it's just nice to listen to a woman talk about guys she's fucked um i don't know then there's a movie not another one about uh, human trafficking called run this is another one that deals with sex trafficking and rape culture gratuitousness and this description actually comes from pure Flix. A dramatic story of relentless faith and courage set against the criminal world of human trafficking. And IMDb says it's about a homeschooled teenager who begins to suspect her mother is keeping a dark secret from her. Is it how many guys she's fucked? I mean, that seems to be the running theme here. Mm. Um, No, it really isn't. I watched the trailer for that one, too, and it's as disgusting as it sounds. Yeah. And then there's the whole thing with end times hysteria. One of the movies on Pure Flix that really embodies this is one that's called Six, because of course it is. And again, from IMDb, in the last days before Armageddon, three men make one eternal choice. Receive the mark of the devil or stand for Christ. This movie will make you think about your own life choices. Who the hell let that on an IMDb? Perfect. You know, then if that's the case, uh, I choose not to give two hours of my life that I will never get back to watching this dumpster fire of a movie. There we go. We actually have GAM for that. And let me plug episode 97 of God Awful Movies because they've done this one. (laughs) They've also done Beckman. I think they've done most of these, to be perfectly honest. Then there's the right now Revelation Road trilogy. Yes. As of right now, it's three movies. But Mm. it's destined to become one of those Douglas Adams trilogies with like a bunch more. Yeah. So Revelation Road. There are three right now. Revelation Road, Revelation Road 2, and the Black Rider Revelation Road. That's part three. Oh, boy. Here's what IMDb has to say about part one. Amidst foreboding lightning and tremors, a traveling salesman with a dark past. (laughs) Again, I can't get through this with a straight face. A traveling salesman with a dark past must fight demons, both his own and a murderous biker gang, in his quest to complete his last sale and go home. (laughs) What? What? It sounds like from dusk till dawn without the intellectual edge. David A.R., why not try to be Quentin Tarantino? Part two. This is Revelation Road 2 with the rapture now history. Traveling salesman Josh becomes a warrior on the road in his plan to return. He's the road warrior. Becomes a warrior on the road in his plan to return home. But God guides others to help make Josh part of his plan. Come on, David, admit it. You read The Stand, didn't you? Who are you trying to be, motherfucking Abigail here? 
actually, no, you probably don't have the intellectual prowess to read a thousand page book. So you probably just watched the miniseries. Yep. That's what you did. Part three, the black rider, the rapture has come and gone. Well, didn't it in the last one in its wake, a wasteland filled with desperate bandits. bandits. Josh McManus, a drifter, now he's not a salesman anymore. He's a drifter with a knack for fighting. Must find the mysterious shepherd. A dangerous mission that will put his faith to the test. Looks like we also like The Walking Dead. Instead of the governor, we have the shepherd, also set in a dystopian future with a vigilante Willie Loman as Rick. <laughs> I think I strained my eye muscles rolling my eyes at uh, these things. Oh, yeah. I, I just can't. I, I was I was hoping that you meant the synopses of the movies and not my stupid jokes. Okay. <laughs> probably synopsis. a little of both. Admit it, probably a little little bit of both. <laughs> a little there. bit, but okay. mostly the synopses. Yeah, at least you'll admit it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, the underlying message here is that you can portray all the gratuitous violence you want in a movie as long as the gospel remains the common thread. I want to end this part of it by talking a little bit about a movie called Jesus Camp. We've mentioned it on the show before, but it mm-hmm. bears another mention here when it comes to this kind of divisiveness and this mind-fucking of children, okay? Um, it has messaging in it about killing witches, and then there's the classic this-means-war moment. And also there were a lot of, well, not a lot, but there's one scene where she talks about some of the object lessons that she uses, and there's violent imagery in that too. So just two quick quotes from this movie to kind of put a cap on things. And this is their illustrious leader, Becky Fishwife, I mean, uh, Fisher, Becky Fisher, talking about Harry Potter. She says, let me say this about Harry Potter. Warlocks are enemies of God. I don't care what kind of hero they are. They're an enemy of God. And had it been in the Old Testament, Harry Potter would have been put to death. How lovely. What a lovely thing to tell children. Mm. And then later on, she's got another quote that really sent chills up and down my spine. Even the first time I saw it, because I wasn't completely, was I completely out at that point? No. We were just sort of, we were starting to see that this was not all it was cracked up to be. Yeah, and this even sent chills up my spine in the context of it being delivered to children. She says, excuse me, but we have the truth. Take these prophecies and do what the Apostle Paul said and make war with them. And then she keeps repeating, this means war, this means war, this means war, and just riling up these kids to just get them thinking in this direction. The theme of evangelical jihad was very very prevalent in this movie. And again, little kids, some of them definitely old enough to have been in that crowd. Were any of them there? Or any of the kids that were at the camp at any other time, were they there? I can't tell you for sure, but I can tell you they were groomed for it. Oh, yeah. That's for damn sure. Mm -hmm. So with that nice little cap on the movies part of it, and, you know, I probably could have dredged up more on Christian movies, gone back a little bit further, because it's not like there wasn't any kind of violent imagery in the in the movies that came out, like in the 80s and whatnot. But I know that it was a lot less yeah. because I was there. I saw a lot of them. It was a lot of campiness and nonsense, mostly. It wasn't Beckman. We'll okay. just put it that way. It, it wasn't an action movie that was being framed as Christian content. And hardly any of the stuff that we saw at the Ambler Christian Cinema. The, the, the most violent thing that we saw there was that clip that they always showed at the end of Jesus on the Via Dolorosa. 
Right. And that was pretty much it. Which is violent enough in and of itself. We didn't even mention the, the Passion of the Christ. Oh, yeah. We didn't even mention that one. But I don't think we even need to get into that one. No. It was gory. It was violent. And to quote the first episode of Weeds, it's a straight-up snuff film. Um, <laughs> not really. Uh, Jim Caviezel is alive and well. Yes. But still, it was pretty gory. And I actually went and saw that movie in a theater surrounded by evangelical cohorts who even back then were annoying me a little bit with the way that they were reacting to it. Lots of not just crying, but like wailing from the crowds and what it was. It was something to experience. That's for sure. But now that we've put two caps on the movie part of this, just a few things that I want to say in closing here as we wind this thing of ours down for another week. I don't think that it's at all ambiguous where the violent tendencies that permeate evangelical thought come from. You read the Bible and you learn that it's okay to rape a woman if you have enough money to pay off her father. Not her, her father. You read that it's okay to bludgeon a rebellious teenager. You see Yahweh exacting all kinds of atrocities and doing it for no other reason than to stroke his own narcissistic ego. Then you have Jesus talking about pitting children against parents, husbands against wives, brothers against brothers. You see him kill a tree for not bearing fruit. Well, fuck Yeshua, you made it. Fix it, don't kill it. But that's never God's MO, is it? There's nothing in the entire Bible that even suggests that God has any interest in fixing the perceived problems that are inherent in humanity. If there's a problem, it's going to be solved through violence. That theme runs rampant through the Old Testament, and don't even sit there and talk to me about how, well, that's the Old Testament, because Jesus also said that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So guess what, ladies and gentlemen? It counts. And after 26 books worth of love and daisies in the New Testament, with a few nods to God's murderous side along the way, we get a 22-chapter plunge back into the depths of biblical violence fueled by the humble king himself coming back with the sword he promised to bring, smiting his enemies and throwing anyone who didn't want to follow him or love him back into a place where they will burn forever. When these are the models of how people should be dealing with their problems and what passes for godly intervention, it isn't at all surprising how easy it would be to rouse the rabble who stormed our nation's capital last week all on their own. Now let's infuse the music we want you to listen to with instance after instance after instance of violent themes and messaging. Let's produce Christian novels that even other evangelicals regard as Christian porn, or worse, toss it up on goodreads.com and talk it up 30 years later because there's still a warehouse full of this shit, and maybe we can make a few extra bucks off of it. Let's create a Christian movie site and load it for bear with violent content and call it positive entertainment that changes lives, inspires hearts, and lifts the spirit. I wonder how many of the unwashed warriors who committed insurrection last week had visions of Beckman running through their heads. I'm a firm believer in the concept of know thine enemy, and as I've said many times before, the enemy isn't the people. It's the system that motivates them to romanticize violence as a way of emulating their god, robs them from any real sense of right and wrong, strips them of empathy and compassion, and instills them with a level of paranoia that makes them believe that the normal process of a presidential election is fraught with conspiracy and corruption. I'm not making excuses for them. I think we all have choices to make, and those who chose to commit insurrection should be held accountable for their actions, and they are being held accountable. But instead of just locking them up, let's try and remember where a lot of the motivation for what they did came from. 
And for many, it started long before they ever heard the name Donald Trump. It starts with, I'm in the Lord's army being sung in Sunday school and learning about the killing of the firstborn of Egypt as something positive. It progresses to putting a record on a turntable and hearing Petra sing about killing my old man. And it's rounded out by watching young girls being victimized and David A.R. White going off on righteous killing sprees that are supposed to be viewed as positive entertainment. As I said last week, I'm not terribly hopeful about this, but maybe, just maybe, if the rest of us keep shining a light on some of the prominent places where things like what we saw last week actually originate, it'll get through to a few. And maybe we can embolden those few to speak out and convince more. And maybe if that happens, it'll become harder for the evangelical machine to keep hiding its real agenda in plain sight. But if not, that's fine. There are plenty of us out there already who are paying attention and have no problem continuing to expose this religion and the thoughts and behaviors it propagates for the cesspool that it is. But let's do our best. Let's do what we must to keep the truth on the table. And let's all keep working together to help those who have ears to hear get and stay unbound. hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. <laughs>